0: Forever! Dog!
1: Welcome to another episode of Best Show Best's The Greatest Hits of The Best Show with me, your host, Tom Sharpling. If you like what you hear, make sure you join us every Tuesday night on Twitch at 6pm Pacific for a brand new episode of The Best Show featuring callers, celebrity guests, live music, and plenty of surprises. Enjoy! Hey, Hey. best show back best show 24, 24 hour marathon. We are in our, we're about to head into the next hour of this. I think we have seven hours to go now and I'm going to go to the phones. I think we have a, a guest I'm going to the phones. We have a, that's right. Famous person on the line. That's right. Famous
2: person on the line. Here we go.
1: That's right. We've got a famous person on the line. And now, everybody, it is my pleasure to welcome to the best show, Jarvis Cocker. How
0: are you, Jarvis? Hello, Tom. I'm all right. How are you if you've been broadcasting for 17 hours straight? I've been
1: talking for 17 hours straight, and I've never done anything like this. The most I ever talked was six hours. I've done six hours of shows, and, yeah, this is a whole other thing. You, you, I didn't realize how low it would get, and the, it's <laughs> it, it's a real test of, of my... Uh, of my uh, willpower. And it's a chance like me versus me right now. Uh, But I think, and I think I'm losing (laughs) it's me versus me and
0: I'm losing. No, don't say that. Don't say that. Uh, uh, How much coffee have you drunk?
1: I've had a bunch, but I've tried to moderate the amount of, of coffee I have been uh, taking in because I didn't want to truly crash. So I've been trying to keep it on like a, like a steady uh almost like an iv drip if that makes sense um right yeah but i'm doing okay and you being here makes me very okay you are the obviously everybody knows who you are everybody listens to show is probably uh uh doing backflips right now jarvis you wrote a book that just came out it came out uh it's it's out in the in, it's out in the UK it's out uh, in Europe um, and but it's not a, is it out in the US yet
0: No I think I think like it's available um you know on import and I think we're trying to get a distribution deal for mm-hmm. it but there isn't a publisher in the US now
1: Sure well it's a it's an amazing book it's called Good Pop Bad Pop an Inventory by Jarvis Cocker and yeah. this book what 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 a joy it was to read uh, this book and you you, I guess ostensibly it's a, uh, it's a it's you talking about everything up until like the 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 point when pulp kind of pops is where where the line stopped. But it's such an amazing journey through your thinking and your experiences and everything that turned that made you you and well first of all the book just looks beautiful the the design and the photos everything it's just it's just wonderful i can't recommend the book uh highly enough it's it's just a real uh a true achievement um and the way you for uh, the way you tell your story is by way of the items that you are kind of uh, sorting through and, and kind of piecing your past together and what has value and what you can say goodbye to. And uh, it's just, you, you really, you really, uh, you really, you really killed it with this Jarvis. What an amazing book.
0: Well, thanks Tom. Yeah. I mean, it's all down to really the fact that I've never really thrown anything away in my life, which obviously can lead to problems. But all this stuff, like you say, it's kind of a, a life story told through objects. And all these objects were just in a loft of a house that I used to live in, like, about 20-odd years ago. And I'd left this stuff there. Um, I'd left London for a while and just left this stuff in a friend's house.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, I always thought that was kind of not so nice of me. <laughs> Maybe they <laughs> okay. might want that space for themselves to store their rubbish in rather than my rubbish. So um, I always thought I would get to grips with it one day, but I guess lots of people have got things hidden away in lofts or cupboards and you very seldom do get round to doing that. But one day I just decided to do it. And luckily for me, I suppose, instead of throwing it all into what I would call a skip, but you would call a dumpster, you know mm-hmm. just throwing it all away i decided to look at each object individually take pictures and see if they could tell me a story and and as you say they've ended up in this book and it, it ends up being a life story told through objects
1: yeah yeah absolutely and how how long had you been contemplating uh writing a book like this because there's other things you've written there was there was actually a kind of like, what would you call the the shorter version of Good Pop, Bad Cop, which was based on two two, uh, lectures that you had done?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, that's good. You see, now what happened was, yeah, I came up with that title for, like we had this thing called Brexit. You've probably heard of it over there. Uh, Terrible idea, but unfortunately it happened, and I was very much against it. I've spent a lot of time living in Europe, so I, I was very keen to remain part of Europe, but um, it went the other way. And I, I did quite a lot of going to on marches and stuff like that. And, and like you say, I, I put together two speeches that I'd made, um, impassioned speeches trying to change people's minds about the subject of Brexit. Uh, they were collected in, this, in a pamphlet called Good Pop, Bad Pop. Yeah. But then... When I came to writing the book, I suddenly realised, why did I throw away that great title on, on a little pamphlet like that? Because, um, I don't know, it just seemed like it would be the best title for this book because most of the objects that I come across are pop items because I, I believe I was kind of raised by the TV and the music that I listen to. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been reading your book and um, I've just been reading your bit about auditioning for the new monkeys. Oh God. Uh, And obviously I don't want to raise that because I know that's uh, um, uh, not such a nice memory for you. But um, it's fine. Obviously we share a love for the original monkeys. You know, I I, I watched that program so much when I was a kid and I think that had a lot to do with my desire to be in a band. I think because I saw it when I was so young, Mm -hmm. I probably thought it was like a reality TV show, you know?
1: Yeah. And it's, it's funny that the, the when you think of the monkeys as this it's kind of like the pinocchio story in the real world where it's this prefabricated band that somehow became a real band against everybody's wishes no none of the people on the business side of things the don Kirshners and the people who were running the television show ever wanted the monkeys to play their own instruments for example but they
2: yeah.
1: did and they they recorded this album headquarters which is this amazing kind of like kind of ramshackle garagey album which is just um it's special and it's kind of but it sticks out in the catalog as this like sore uh, like this this like uh this this nail uh it's like a square peg in a round hole because they had the best session guys but then suddenly there's this album that feels like very homemade and it's just the mm-hmm. the monkeys will always hold a very special uh, place in my heart because um, there's something beautiful about the whole concept because they're they're basically saying what is authenticity is ultimately what the monkeys say to me because at that point the Beatles are singer songwriter you got to write your own songs if you're legit if you're authentic but the monkeys. Now, just it the time has proven that the songs are the songs, the singing is the singing, and that is what makes something stand the stand the test of time. so yeah, the monkeys are incredibly important to me. Um, so you how long had you been thinking about actually writing this sort of book?
0: Well, I guess a lot of people, you know, you kind of think at the back of your mind oh, yes, one day I'll write a book. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
0: I liked the idea of it, but I didn't really... It kind of almost happened by accident. I I did a a collection of lyrics about 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. and um, that that book was taken up by a Spanish publisher and translated into Spanish. And I got to be friends with the woman who who, who had, had bought the book, and she then became a literary agent, and she said, Jarvis, um, can I be your literary agent? And I said, well, yes, Monica, you can. But I have no intention of writing a book. But if you think it's a good idea, then I have no objections. So she became my literary agent. And then kind of almost without me realizing, she got me a book deal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it was quite a good deal. So then I just had to write a book.
1: Yeah. She took care of the deal part of book deal. You had to take care of the book part of book deal, which is probably,
2: yeah, which is the harder it. part. And, of but the
0: I was so grateful to her for doing that because I left to my own devices. I never would have focused myself to do it, mm-hmm. but because she got me this deal, it was just like, well, you've got to do it now. Otherwise you're going to look an idiot. And, and that's often, the spur that we need to actually create things is that fear of shame of being shown up. And, and, oh. and in this case it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Now that it still took me quite a long time. I mean, I started the book almost five years ago because I, had, I had to kind of teach myself to write in a, in a different way. I mean, I don't know if you felt that I know that you write uh, scripts and things, but, mm-hmm. but writing a book is, is a, is a different thing. I think. It, 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 was... it was much different to writing songs.
1: It's different than anything I've ever done and the, the one of the hardest parts was getting my voice to work on a page without it just feeling like somebody just rolled a tape recorder and transcribed me me talking for a couple of days and then cobbled that together into a book mm. like trying to make it work as a book but also have it feel kind of like it's like it's kind of, getting that ease is the hard part of just about anything the To make something look effortless and breezy is what takes the most effort. Uh, And writing a book is the ultimate version of that. At least I thought, I can't think of anything I've done that was harder than writing a book. So you get it. I get it. Find us on your podcast app of choice or watch us on youtube at youtube.com slash office hours live Who are the animals because I
2: don't smell them
1: <laughs> now what a big part of the book is your fascination with the charts, which is a much more it's much more of a british thing than a us thing in terms of the the rooting interest you you could have uh wanting a single to be like like the idea of the christmas number 1 is something that doesn't that that does not happen here in the us that's not but in england it's it's this amazing this amazing like race to see who can ha- get the the christmas number 1 single what what are some of the the um what are some of the chart battles that uh, throughout your life that you were just really invested in
0: well yeah i mean the thing is i i get what you're saying the charts for me have become less important and mm. I, and i'm often wondering whether that's just because of my age or whether mm. they've just gone rubbish i prefer to think they've just gone rubbish Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I don't know whether that's actually true. But like you mentioned the Christmas number one thing. I mean, that's become really dull in this country over the last few years because there's this guy who has cornered the market. Basically, every year he writes, he releases a song with all the proceeds going to charity. So that's the good side of it. Sure. But it's always just a cover version of a famous song into which he manages to put the the word sausage roll.
2: <laughs> okay. I don't
0: know if, uh, if I don't know if you're familiar with sausage rolls. They're kind of like sausage meat with like flaky pastry around them. They're okay. very popular in the UK. I don't know if they're so popular in the states. Anyway, I think the first one he had was I love sausage rolls. So that was the first one. Mm-hmm. And then what? Anyway, he's had the number one for the last three years, so I've lost interest in the sure. in the Christmas number one battle.
1: Well, how about as a kid? Um, do you remember chart battles as a I kid really you were
0: could... obsessed with? Another one? Do you really want another one? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll take as many as you can <laughs> um, do,
1: as many sausage roll songs as you've got.
0: Oh, man. But now I've got to remember... I'm going to have to Google now because <laughs> <It laughs> I try to keep them out of my, mm-hmm. out of my, uh, consciousness. Because, sure. Uh, but,
1: but when you always, were, when you were a kid, were there certain you, then ones? You, then
0: you always, you always sing that.
1: Mm-hmm. And you,
0: then the original song, song know, goes away somehow. Yeah. It, um, it's but, funny uh, because you, but oh, here you... we go. Hold on. I've got one for you now. Okay. All right, we've got I Love Sausage Rolls. Okay. Um, I can give you the sample lyric if you'd like. Please. I saw him standing there in the bakery <laughs> holding the biggest sausage roll I've ever seen. Don't know it would turn me on, but I'd never seen one. I mean, it's quite rude as well. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's, that's the way he, de- he desecrates Joan Jett's song. Sure. Um, on that one. Now, let's have a look. The, the, ne- the year before, uh, no, hold on. Now, that was the one in 2019. Um, the one in 2020, uh, oh, that, oh, that was an original song, Rubbish. Right, last year's, I'm going to find you last year's, mm-hmm. was... Come and sing and dance to sausage rolls with me. Here we go. We are back trying to make history. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, it seems that maybe they only did that one. Maybe, okay. maybe they were. Uh, anyway, I've, I've shared too much with you there. Uh, <laughs> but the last time that I really took a lot of interest in the charts was probably back in punk times. You know, it was a big thing to think that punk bands could get in the charts. Sure. Uh, you know the, the famous thing in the UK is, is that when there was the Silver Jubilee, the Sex Pistols released "God Save the Queen," and mm-hmm. everybody kind of agrees now that that should have been number one. But somehow they fiddled the figures, and I think it was uh, Rod Stewart's "Sailing" was number one instead. Sure, the
1: fix was in, and they were not going to let yeah. that happen. Now, how how did it feel for somebody who uh, was? Uh, you uh, go ahead sorry
0: yeah go on sorry
1: i was going to say you were mindful of pop music mindful of the charts and then when your turn came common people went to number 2 right you it didn't go all the way yeah you 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 almost had the number 1 single and what what kept it out was another kind of like garbagey song right
0: well, that was these two guys called Robson and Jerome who were in uh, a TV program. Um, and they kind of... Yeah, they they also desecrated famous songs. So they, they did a cover version of Unchained Melody. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was number one uh, instead of Common People, yeah.
1: Sure. And that... Uh, it's almost like one of those things where it's like, what are you going to do? The... That's, that's, uh, there's, it, it, what should have been was not what was, it's a number one song in all of our hearts.
0: Well, uh, no, I, I mean, I don't, I mean, the thing was before that, Pulp, I think the highest we'd been in the charts was like number 30, so mm-hmm. to actually get in the top 10 was just like a mind-blowing thing. It was, you know, as you say, maybe it's an alien thing in the States. I guess at one point it would have been a big deal. I guess people gave up on the charts in the States quite a long time ago. I mean, as I say in the book, you know, I, I kind of realized that a few years ago when I was in Chicago and I was I was recording an album with Steve Albini, and he's famous for kind of hating chart music and pop music. And we were talking one lunchtime, and, and he asked me what my favorite type of music was, and I said pop music, and he kind of nearly choked on this sandwich <laughs> yeah. he was eating. Um so, so that made me realize that it, they don't really hold the same thing, I suppose, maybe because the UK is a smaller country. And, and the thing that I liked about the charts or, or that seemed to be a thing that it was a it was a kind of weird form of of capitalist democracy, because a, a, a seven inch single would cost maybe 50p, you know, which is mm-hmm. less than a dollar, whatever. And, and you could buy that single, and then you would kind of, like, as you said at the beginning, like, you would feel invested in that, like, thinking, oh, is, is that record going to go up the charts? It was almost like uh, betting on a horse or something. Yeah. You, you, you felt like you had some, you were kind of voting in some kind of exciting election. Sure. And if enough of the like-minded people voted for that song, it could get somewhere. And and they, I suppose the one that I always seem to... Uh, use as an example of that was when Laurie Anderson got to number two in the, in the UK pop charts with, with her song, Oh Superman, which was just, you know, something so left field was, was there, was, was there almost at number one.
1: And that is the beauty of, of the British charts because the U S is just so enormous that you just can't move the needle as easily as you can because there's just, I mean, the U.S. is just too big to do that. You have so many regional hits in the U.S. over, Like, that's been the history of so much rock here. It's just like, oh, this band was popular in, te- in the, Texas. And, but, they, but their records really didn't make it much out of that. Like, there are these local hits. England is just a little more manageable in terms of the charts and actually being able to make a dent. And, and you have your identity tied to those uh, to those singles you buy. You, um, you know, one thing I I was curious about, you've always had like movies have always clearly been important to you. You you've talked in the past about having kind of, uh, having, uh, Filmic aspirations, I guess, over the years, and um, is that something you still have? I mean, I know you did you did the Wes Anderson music, which was amazing. You got to do the 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 French pop for that as was it Tip Top?
0: And yeah, that's the yeah. Uh, in, in Wes Anderson's last film, The French Dispatch, there's this kind of fictional pop star called Tip Top who mm-hmm. doesn't actually appear in the film. But um, me and, and the band that I have at the moment, we did a version of a very big French hit called Aline. Uh, and uh, we did that for the film. And then Wes thought it would be interesting to, like, pretend that Tip Top really existed and why don't you do his greatest hits album. Mm-hmm, mm <laughs> was fantastic for me because I've been a fan of French pop music for a long time. So I could kind of pick a lot of these songs that I really love and, and try and do good versions of them. So that's, that's what the tip top album is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you, do you still feel, um, because you, you've, you've done a book, you've done so much with music. You've done a book like film. Is that a medium you would want to ever try in any way? Because I know in the past you had talked about, Wanting to make a go at some kind of thing in in movies, I don't know if you were talking thinking about directing or writing, or something like that. Is that still an ambition
0: you you have? I guess so. You know, I mean that's what that's what made me move to London uh, at the end of the eighties. I Paul had already existed. I mean, I started the band at school, and uh, after school finished, uh, the other members of the band went to be sensible and go to college and university. Uh, and I stayed in Sheffield because I, I really wanted to, to be, you know, to, to be a musician and, and have that as my life, but then it didn't really work out. And it, I got to kind of my mid twenties and thought, if I don't make a move now, I'm just going to be stuck in this town for the rest of my life. Sure. So I applied randomly to St. Martin's college, um, which some people might be familiar with, because of the lyrics to Common People. I I applied there to do film. I had I I picked up a, an old Super 8 camera from a kind of you know like a garage sale kind of thing, and and um and I was I'd filmed a couple of things and I applied to college and through a, a strange I don't know I, I I got in and and that got me out of Sheffield and got me to London and um and so yeah then I thought I, I studied film for three years and and thought maybe I would do something with that. But then in a weird kind of way, towards the end of of college, um, we played a concert and suddenly people clapped. Mm -hmm. And um, so I thought, oh, okay. Because music has really always been the thing that I've wanted to do because it's the thing that that moves me the most. I I write about that a bit in the book, this thing called the tingle. You know, mm-hmm. where when you hear a song that you really like, you get this funny kind of buzzy, tingling feeling in your neck and shoulders. And I, I don't really get that with anything else. You know, I, I I can read a book and I can appreciate it, and I can watch a film and I can think, yeah, that's a good film. But, but with the song, if I hear a song that I really love, it will actually—it's like it gets inside you and it moves you. You know, there's no way to explain how just hearing something can provoke that kind of physical response. And so that's like a form of magic. And, uh, and so I always wanted to kind of be involved in music because I wanted to feel that magic, but I also wanted to try and learn how to produce that magic as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's that's one of the things I I'm, I'm strangely grateful that I don't make music because then I'm not truly kind of taking the watch apart uh, in in the way where I'm mm. trying to figure out I can I can still hold on to the to that part of the magic and truly there are elements that are as that will always be mysterious to me with music that I'm I'm actually grateful for because I've done done enough writing for TV and these things and sometimes I watch a show and all I think about is, Oh, I wonder how many, uh, wonder how they got that location. I wonder how many days they were shooting there and, uh, whether they were shooting at night, if they're doing, you know, they're, they're doing, uh, you know, just like uh, the, this thinking of the, the technical side of it. And that kind of, it definitely killed a little bit of the, the magic of, of TV for me was just knowing how the, how the uh, sausage is made. No, uh, not trying to make a reference to your number one hits, your Christmas song, but it's just that kind of thing. So music is important for me that I get to kind of still hang on to that. Uh, I still don't understand it in the sense of how it's truly put together.
0: Um, yeah, and it, it's and it's the thing. It, it's a strange, you know, because I've now spent most of my life. Making music and it's it is a it is a weird thing because I I agree I want to I want to still be moved by it I don't want to I'm not particularly technical I, I I haven't really got a home studio or anything like that because mm-hmm. I I kind of still want it to be uh, exciting to go into a studio or exciting to go and try and play a song mm-hmm. to uh, to the rest of the band and see whether they think it's any good or not um, sure. And you can still hold on uh, to that excitement? But but then again, you don't want to kind of uh, artificially try and pretend that you're still like, uh, I've still got my punk spirit. Because obviously after 40 years of making music, you do develop skills or or ways of doing it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you've definitely played with that in terms of how you did the last uh, Jarvis record of of workshopping the stuff live and really trying to find different different approaches and different uh different forms of attack to to uh to see what the results would be. So i i it's a, it's a i Yeah, love...
0: well, with that? I mean that that it's good that you you raised that because that was such a revelation for me because I, I think for anything any art form um self-consciousness is your biggest enemy. You know, you have to just kind of get on with it and not think about it too much. And and I've certainly in the at certain points in my career I've got kind of blocked and and not been very productive. And so when we went out on this tour and we started kind of recording stuff as we were We'd kind of written the songs a bit. It wasn't like we were jamming or improvising. Mm -hmm. I'd written some words and I kind of had vague structures for the songs, but I wasn't sure exactly how the story ended with any of the songs. And we just started playing them and being... Because as soon as you play something to an audience, you play it in a completely different way to how you would play it in a rehearsal room or whatever. Mm -hmm. Because you're aware that they're watching and they may have paid some money to see you, so you'd better give them something worth listening to and worth looking at. So Mm -hmm. that was kind of the thing that unlocked those songs, and then we also had the opportunity to record them, so we kind of caught the songs. It was almost like catching them as they were born and before you start to mess around too much, Uh, and that was a, a very liberating thing to do.
1: Yeah. That's, that's, that's really interesting for you to just keep pushing in different ways to, to see where you go, but you can't, you can't deny who you are and who you've been in that process. And look, I, I've got one more thing. we'll then we'll let you get on with your night. You announced a, a day or so ago, the 2023, you're going to do some pulp shows. Um, is that going to be a, a U.S. Uh, are you going to do some in the U.S. also? please.
0: Well, I'm not trying to be cryptic here, Tom, but, um, I, we're not sure yet. I mean, we're definitely going to do some shows and I'm excited about that. And it's been really, um, kind of, yeah, it's been quite touching, actually. The fact that people also seem, you know, people out there seem to be, uh, excited about that. And,
2: yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I am looking forward to being able to lay those songs on people and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to the best of my ability. Um, And um, we're just trying to work out how it's going to work, where we're going to start, where we're going to go. So I I, I can't really, as I say, I'm not being mysterious. I just can't really answer that question. Oh, it makes sense. The
1: The one thing I would say is respectfully – Please consider some songs from "We Love Life," which I feel like gets short shrift in the body of work. It's so it's so great, and people overlook well, it.
0: Thank you. Well, you know that's just because before before I decided whether we were going to try and do this, I thought I'd better listen to the songs. You know, the thing is, I I, I would I never listen to my own music for pleasure because that's something. I don't know. You spend so much time making a record and playing it live that I would never listen to it at home. Yeah. But because we were thinking about doing uh, some shows, I thought, well, a logical thing would be listen to the songs and see whether you still think they're any good.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and
0: so I listened to all the Pulp albums one evening, and we I came to that one last, obviously, because I... Chronologically, that's the last pulp album, and I don't know. I I, I didn't, but I, I enjoyed that record more than I thought, and and yeah, I think I think we probably will play a couple of, of songs from that because I was kind of pleasantly surprised by that record.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a truly beautiful record, and it gets it gets uh, overlooked, and it would be nice to see it get some uh, some love.
0: So. Yeah, what? Thanks. I mean, the, the the big thing about that record was really that, um, you know, we, we ended up uh, working with Scott Walker. He, he produced that record. And so it will always be special because of that, because um, he kind of put the light to that thing. You know, sometimes when people say, don't meet your idols,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: you'll only be disappointed or whatever. But uh, it was, you know, he's anybody who knows anything about me as a musician will know how important and central an influence he is on me. And so the fact that we actually got to know him a bit and, and make a record with him, and, uh, you know, is just one of the high points in my life. It's, to use your phrase, uh, <laughs> Tom, what is it? It's like, uh, it's, I'm just going to use your phrase here.
2: Mm-hmm. It
0: is, come here, come, here, come here, a story of unqualified triumph. Oh, my goodness.
1: Well, Jarvis, you don't know what that uh, means to me that you actually have my book blows me away. And you are the best and we all love you. And hopefully you do take the shows to the U.S. and we will see you um, wherever you are. We will see it. And thank you for making the time and coming on the show. Uh, What a thrill.
0: Oh, well, thanks, Tom. It's been great to talk to you, and and keep you, you know you, you've got the finish line in sight now. Mm-hmm. What you've got like six and a half hours left to go. Six now? and
1: a half hours to go, and we'll we'll get there. Um,
0: yeah. Okay. Awesome.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jarvis. I appreciate it. Well, yeah. Good. Good. Good to speak to you. Of course. Thank you. Well, we will talk to you soon, and thank you again, and have a great night.
2: Okay. All right. Uh, bye.
1: Well, well, well. How about that? Hey, you like apples? Well, how do you like them apples? The Best Show is produced in partnership with the Forever Dog Podcast Network. The show is hosted by Tom Sharpling and features John Worcester, Michael Lisk, Jason Gore, and Pat Byrne. The show is produced and written by Jason Gore, Pat Byrne, Michael Lisk, Brett Davis, John Worcester, and Tom Sharpling. The Best Show is executive produced by Tom Sharpling, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Co-executive produced by Jason Gore and Pat Burns, segment producer Michael Wisk. The show is engineered and mastered by Andrew Gleason and Wesley Knapp. Graphic design, video editing, and social media by Brett Davis. Website and technical support by Martine Sellis. And the show is recorded at Forever Dog Studios in Los Angeles. Support The Best Show on Patreon over at patreon.com slash the best show, and follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Best Show for Life. That's Best Show Number Four Life. Thanks for
2: listening, and we'll see you next week.